Naturally occurring black pigments in vegetables, spices, and seeds have been found to have powerful anti-inflammatory effects. Hi, this is Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and I'm excited about what I think may be the next big thing in anti-inflammatory supplements, a brand new all-natural daily preventative against a host of possible inflammatory issues. Black for Health Liquid Extract from Future Farm Botanicals. Black for Health combines four plant-based foods, black garlic, black radish root, black cumin seed, and black peppercorn containing high levels of body-ready healing botanicals. Black for Health supports your liver, skin, cholesterol, blood pressure, and weight management, circulation, and immunity. It's a tasty supplement with liposome complex for optimal absorption. For more information or to order, call 888-841-7216, 888-841-7216, or go to myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. That's myfuture. Farm, P-H-A-R-M, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman, myfuturefarm.com slash Hoffman. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Our guest is Gary Stapleton. He's the founder of Aerodiagnostics uh, Laboratories. Uh, Gary, you want to give a, a where's the uh, information about that lab? It's, uh, there's a number, you're in sure. Massachusetts. Yes, the, the lab that where we actually process the specimens is just outside of the city of Boston in Massachusetts. The contact number is area code 617-608-3832, or you can reach us through aerodiagnostics.com, and that's A-E-R-O, diagnostics, and it's all one word. And we are, um, we're available. We operate not only in the United States, but in 29 countries. And Gary, this is not a direct-to-consumer test, right? You can't just say, I want to, you know, send me a test kit, I'll send it in, and, you know, without any kind of intervening health professional, a person can't have this test, is that correct? No, we we do direct Oh, you do? Okay, but we don't, great. We don't suggest it, though. So okay. to your point, Dr. Hoffman, yeah. for the, the folks listening, yeah. Yeah. the test alone is not a diagnostic. Yeah. It's, it's diagnostic, but it requires a clinician to interpret it and to match it to clinical outcomes and... To, to appropriately treat if found positive by a clinician and a patient will require a, a clinician's involvement. So even though we make it available, it's it's something that we solidly encourage uh, folks to reach out. And if they need help, right. we'll find someone for them. But what's nice about the test is that it's a diagnostic test that's available to, um, I think, nutritionists, uh, to uh, health coaches and uh uh, non-MD and DO practitioners, correct? So that they can yeah. uh, establish a diagnosis, a functional medicine diagnosis without uh, actually, uh, you know, if their scope of um, practice does not involve a blood tests, for example, they can actually uh, achieve some degree of um, diagnostic accuracy using this test because it's basically breath. It's not blood. It doesn't involve venipuncture. Okay. Okay. Exactly right. I, I would point out one thing, that yeah. one of the two SIBO test offerings is um, is a substrate that's called lactulose. Right. It's not lactose. It's a it's a pharmaceutical in the United States only. It's a, it's so a, a sort of a light prescription States, medication, yes. Yeah, right. Right. But a, a, a patient cannot get that on their own without right. a signed um, order from a licensed prescriber in their state. But, Gary, uh, Gary where would you use test, the, which is highly accurate. Where would you use the lactulose in lieu of glucose? Because uh, I haven't really done that very much. So this is a big controversy, and it's one that um, there are many opinions. So I'll describe how I view lactulose versus glucose, and I'll give you the other opinions. 
when I started the lab, I didn't know the difference, and I offered both, and then I found that there are some prescribers that can't, uh, or some clinicians that can't get lactose because they're not licensed right. in their state for whatever reason, different state laws. Um, so I said, well, if, you know, there was this comment that glucose as one of the substrates to be used for SIBO is, is good. However, it's absorbed in the small intestine. So you're going to miss a distal infection. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. That means if you are using a substrate to find bacteria, but the, the body absorbs it, it absorbs it before it gets through the, the small intestine is that squiggly, really long tube and it's 23 mm-hmm. plus feet long. So the theory is it doesn't get through the whole thing, so you're going to miss a distal infection. It is a good theory, and it's one that there are very strong opinions about, not one that I'm going to debate. However, I will say that the data doesn't support it. If you look at the studies with the actual endpoint of determining the efficacy, the sensitivity and specificity, it's how you determine whether tests are good or bad, mm-hmm. of glucose, the actual sensitivity and specificity of glucose is higher than that of lactulose. Okay. Um, but it's quite, it's a little misleading and I'll tell you why. When you really look at the data, the only reason that is, is because there are, uh, misinterpretations of how to read the lactulose test. So to, to shorten this up, glucose, there are theories that it's, it, it misses a distal infection because it gets absorbed. Lactulose, it's a theory that there, it's calling too many positives because lactulose is a laxative. It increases the rate at which it goes through the body. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at a period of time, if you get a distal infection, meaning there's gas toward the end of the either 90 or 120 minutes, is that really small intestine or is that colon? So it's an interpretive issue. It's not the fact. Mm-hmm. I've had now over 30,000 tests that I've reviewed myself, and I've had many where a patient will do one one day and one the next, and they have always, always matched up. Oh, that's reassuring. And if you do yeah. it right, it absolutely is. So, so then why, which one to choose? If you are not a licensed prescriber in your state or you have, you don't have someone who can get it for you, then you don't have a choice. You, you're going with glucose. And glucose is very accurate, so don't worry about it. However, if you're using lactulose and we have a distal infection or a distal gas rise, let's say the gas only rose at 100 or 120 minutes and it didn't rise before that, then you have to challenge those. You have to say, is this colon or is this small intestine? How do you do that? You go back to what we discussed in part one, which is, do we have chronic postprandial SIBO symptoms? If we do and we have this, it's not uncommon to have a distal infection. Why? Because how do you get SIBO? How do you get bacteria in your small intestine? We never talked about that. You either get it because you've introduced it via food, a lot of food poisoning, mm-hmm. or imagine this, a, a compromised ileocecal valve. So for those listening, ileocecal valve Think of it as a door between the large intestine and the small intestine. Again, the large intestine has bacteria. The small intestine is not supposed to have a lot of bacteria. So if you have that door slightly ajar Mm -hmm. from some kind of trauma, could have been an accident, could have been the person's a kickboxer, could have been the fact that there was a colonoscopy or a colonic or whatever it may be, and that's disturbed that ileocecal valve, then you can have bacteria growing up. So distal positives are not uncommon. So just to put the rest of the... Lactose glucose. If you're working with a good laboratory and you have a good set of data, that meaning the CO2 is right, proving that it's lung air, and you're doing the right things in the laboratory, then you know that you have gas, and we can debate whether or not, based on the symptom profile and the chronic nature of it, whether or not it's a true distal or not. And so if you were to say, okay, I can I can choose either one. Which one should I choose, Gary? I like lactose, and I'll tell you mm-hmm. why. 
Lactulose confirms true negative. What do you mean by that? Well, if you have prepped correctly, like we discussed, and if you now introduce a food source, whether it be glucose or lactulose, if it doesn't find bacteria, a glucose test is just negative. No gas, no bacteria, right? Mm-hmm. Lactulose, because it's not absorbed, when it goes into the colon, you have a rise. So a true negative lactulose test has no gas and then a rise in the third hour of the test. True mm-hmm. negative. Mm-hmm. Now you might say, well, but so what do you, what's, what's the special about that? Well, think about if, and it happens, a patient does a lactulose test, doesn't drink the lactulose because they have brain fog, right? So you have a lactulose test that has no rise at the end. When that happens, most labs just call it negative. I don't do that. Our staff will pick up the phone and call the clinician and say, we haven't had a rise at this, the end of the test. This is very suspicious, right? What did you, you know, what did you really do here? Yeah. Right. And I, I've come up with a list of nine questions that we have them go through. Yeah. Number one, yeah. did you drink the lactulose? Yeah. Number two, did you mix it with water because it needs to be mixed with water? And then there are five things that would lead us to believe that there's bacteria is washed out of the colon, mm-hmm. whether it be colonic or, yeah. or, you know, heavy diarrhea or whatever. Um, but then there's the whole hydrogen sulfide controversy, and that's one of the questions. And we've now determined ways of determining whether or not we're dealing with that as well. And that might be the, the future of testing because that's another gas. It's very transient, hard to measure, but it plays a role in gastrointestinal health. But you know, the question I want to uh, ask you, and some patients balk at this test. They say, I don't want to drink sugar, and I don't want to drink lactulose. That's a lactulose. This test is going to make me sick. Is that a, is that a, are those concerns warranted by the patients? I think for those that are highly sensitive, I can understand why. But the glucose is tapered by weight, and we only need a very small amount to be able to, to detect to, for the bacteria to ferment. So it, that's measured by weight. The lactulose is only 10 grams, so it's a very small amount. So of the 30,000 tests that I've done, and not everyone reports, I may have had a handful of clinicians that called and said, well, my patient felt really sick after mm-hmm. after consuming it. But to your point, Dr. Hoppen, if a patient is that anxious about it, you don't want to add to it. So yeah. if, if test isn't for everyone. If they're going to be that anxious about it, then you can't test for it. But here's the problem when you don't test. You're going to go on symptoms alone. So the patient is bloating, cramping. You don't know whether or not to treat with methane. Let's say you're just going to be aggressive, treat as if all everyone's methane fine. But when they come back, they're going to say, I feel better. They always do because the typical patient is dealing with either diarrhea or constipation and either bloating, cramping, nausea, one of those. They get rid of that constipation or diarrhea. They feel like a new person. They're going to tell you they've never been better. And then three months, they're back in and we're going to call it a recurrence when it's like the weed in the root. Mm-hmm. You pulled the weed, but the, the root is still there. So we need to know if the bacteria mm-hmm. is there. Yeah, so, is, so, so this test is useful. Uh, done sequentially, you know, as uh, not just diagnostic uh, for primary diagnosis, but also for monitoring uh, treatment response so that you can have patients uh, retest just to make sure that whatever symptoms they're having, um, whether they're attributable to persistent SIBO, whether it's something else. I think that's been useful for me as I, I sometimes will I pose the question, uh, let's see if your SIBO is really uh, eradicated because it's hard to treat SIBO. You need a combination sometimes of diet, uh, nutraceuticals, uh, probiotics. In some cases, well, probiotics can be a little problematic in SIBO. You have to be very careful. And then, of course, medications as a last resort. 
Um, so it, it's a metric of your progress in eradicating the SIBO, which is useful for clinicians and patients alike. It is, and 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 I'll, you know, you've heard. Well, SIBO has a high recurrence. I'm I'm not going to, you know, take on whether there's a high recurrence. But I can tell you from doing the tests that we've done and working from the clinicians now that we have, every time we get a test and we know if there's been a prior, and we see who has the most success. The most success, and this comes from the thought leaders in SIBO, are those that suspect SIBO based on chronic postprandial symptoms that test to confirm it, treat accordingly and then uh, 10 days post-antibiotic or uh, herbal antimicrobials. They're retesting to see if it's gone. If you go on symptoms alone, the likelihood is you knock down some of the bacteria, and over a period of time, it's going to repopulate, and then we're going to call it a recurrence. You're going to do that for a period of years. The patient will often get, uh, you know, develop anxiety and or depression, and then they're going to seek someone who will test, treat, retest, and be done. That's why the testing is relatively inexpensive, that being under $200 if, if it's a cash-paying patient. And then with our lab, if a patient needs access, we're going to get them access one way or the other. It's not about necessarily about the money. I mean, it's a business, and you need to, you know, you need to keep the mm-hmm. lights on. However, we want patients tested. Right, and there's some very uh, sick patients who, because of their illness, they're not able to work. They're virtually indigent. And right. Your lab has been very, very accommodating in, in, in certain cases where it's, where it's needed. Um, what about the collection? You know, it, it's a little dicey because, you know, when you draw blood, uh, you know, you stick the needle in, the blood comes out, you fill the tube, hopefully, uh, you know, it doesn't sit around too long or you spin it properly, you put it in the right tube. But, you know, it's a little bit more straightforward than breathing into an apparatus to collect gas and patients may screw it up. So how do you know whether you have a, a good sample and is it is this really idiot proof? It is, and that is what most don't understand because there have been some that utilize devices that may or may not have data to support the collection and the validation of it. So what are we talking about? It's interesting to use the word blood. Everyone has had a blood draw, right? You go and you sit down and they poke there, and what happens? They keep switching the tubes out, right? Guess what? Same concept if you use the right devices. So we use devices that have been tested, that have data on them, that prove they not only collect but transport and then validate back in the lab that it's true lung air, not room air or dead air space. Dead air space is being defined as the air in the mouth. How? It is just like that vacutainer. Vacutainer is that what Dr. Hoffman was just mentioning where you you, you puncture the skin and you, you, know, you remove the t- test tubes and you keep drawing blood. It's the same concept. The device, the mouthpiece, which has a small blue bag attached to it, the blue bag is not attaching is not collecting the breast specimen. It's a mis- misnomer in that if you look at it, it actually has holes in it. The fact is you're going to exhale through a, a plastic piece. That plastic piece has a needle in it in, in like a different section, and you're puncturing. You're not puncturing the skin in any way, but you're exhaling through this plastic device. You're puncturing a, an evacuated test tube. An evacuated test tube is a test tube that has a rubber stopper that has removed the air out of it. And so what you do is, as you exhale, you puncture the, the rubber stopper, and mm. your breath is leaving your lungs, going through your mouth, going through the device into the test tube. Mm. Now, the test tubes have data on them that they not only collect it, but transport it. When we get it back to the lab, we don't open it up. It's never opened up to room air. You puncture it again. It's vacuumed out, and the very first test we do is a carbon dioxide test, a CO2 test. So those and that, labs, that's a, that's a quality we, assurance test. That validates whether... 
it's just their lung air or whether it's, you know, I mean, obviously it does come to right. some extent come from the lungs, but whether it represents a, an accurate sample from the GI tract. It does because it's, it's, it's at a standard uh, rate in um, lung air and it's in trace amounts in non-lung air. So we know if that specimen is true lung air and that's the way that we know whether or not we have, uh, an, you know, an accurate sample. And you can have a bad sample here or there and still be able to call a test, but um, that's how we know. But, but then to your, you know, just to take it one step further, great, so we got the lung air to the lab. What happens when that machine goes on? And here's where some of the clinics and, and hospitals and, and uh, private offices and labs that maybe don't understand that these, these are highly sensitive uh, devices that work based off gas chromatography. You know, if you have it by a window and the, the light is hitting it, you know, and changing the temperature of it during the day, it'll, it'll affect the machine. If you have it on a bench that moves because they vibrate, then that'll affect the machine. If you have it over top of carpet, you have EMF. So you're walking across, right. anyone who's walked across the carpet and touched something and got a shock. So, so Gary, you don't recommend that I buy a Quintron machine and just set it up in my office, uh, take a, you know, uh, online course and learn how to do it and never calibrate it uh, going forward and just crank out tests. I could charge more. Well, you know? <laughs> well I, yeah, I will tell you this, Dr. Hoffman, the, the devices are, are very good. And if you do it properly, you can definitely do it in your office and do it well. All you just need to follow the Quintron does a fantastic job of outlining exactly but it, it what sounds like it requires a lot of due diligence and training and yeah. uh, you know and 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 maintaining uh standards you know you talk about uh how you have to calibrate the machine on a regular basis yeah. after every few tests because uh you can't just you know it's not like um a toaster <laughs> you know exactly right and if you were to come to our lab and you know tours welcome you'll see every every uh, patient specimen is because uh, there's 10 test tubes for SIBO is in a tray, and every fifth tray is red. It means it tells the technician stop and recalibrate the machine to known values. But any 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 uh, entity, hospital, clinic, or office that has one of these machines, if they ever wanted to consult with me, I'm happy to help them at no charge to to operate the machines correctly. Mm-hmm. So it can be done, and it should be done in certain instances where it's the right thing if a office has the right volume and everything. So I don't want to say that you you can't do it that way. Yeah. I know that we do a, a high throughput, so our machines, you can't, you can't just flip these machines on either. They're supposed to run. You know, we have battery backups. We have so many things that we do to be sure that they run right, and we're always uh, willing to help. There, More people need to be tested, not less, so I don't need to be the only one out there doing it. However, I need to, to be done right, or you get these questions that the testing is bad. <laughs> So, is it, so is it fair to say, I mean, I've heard this uh, simplified, that uh, diarrhea-predominant SIBO, you know, where you have urgency and loose bowel movements and you, you know, can't get out of the house in the morning, um, is hydrogen-predominant, but IBS-C, which is constipation-predominant, partakes more of methane, or is that an oversimplification? Well, I will, the, the fact is, that it's a good rule of thumb, and there are major thought leaders that have spoken on this. And a couple of years ago, there was a very well-respected, still very well-respected researcher in the area of IVF that made a comment about methane and and uh, constipation and um, diarrhea and hydrogen. And it was the context that was lost, and the and the the, the social media took over on it. And they said. So we had patients calling us, 
uh, your test has to be wrong because I'm, I have constipation and it's only hydrogen here. I'm, I can tell you, uh, the test is not wrong. If we measure methane, it's because it's there. If it's not there, it wasn't our miss on it. It's because mm-hmm. it's a good rule of thumb, but it's not always a scenario. And that same researcher has then, since then, um, re- reframed the context of that. It was just something that took off. But to your point, Dr. Hoffman, it's a good rule of thumb. It is a good rule of thumb. I yep. would say after seeing so many, probably it's a good rule of thumb. Okay. Uh, so the interpretation. Um, yep. You know, you say it's binary, but it's not like um, red light, green light. It really does. Right. I mean, you, what you're going to get is you're going to get a curve. The test lasts three hours, and you're going to see a curve of both methane, and you're going to see a curve of hydrogen over that time. And I got to tell you that for me, um, it's a little like reading tea leaves. And that's why I rely on the interpretation of a laboratory that has a lot of experience interpreting these tests. So it is, it's an art rather than, you know, a rocket science equation, right? Yeah, it is. And here's, here, so there are two, two approaches. The gold standard for breath testing for the last 10 years or more has been a three-hour breath test. That's been the gold standard, right? We know that. And it's not because you would say, well, we're clearly, in, in the third hour of this test, we're clearly not in the small intestine. I would agree with that. But the third hour is for control purposes. So I can't emphasize that enough. We need that last hour for control, not for determination of whether we have SIBO, but for a control factor that the test was done right. So it's a three-hour breath test. The first two hours, we're going to look for gas, and we're going to judge where that gas came into your point. Is this, if it's after 90 minutes, are you in the colon? There's a lot of data that suggests that transit time past 90 minutes, you're in the colon. However, we all know the patients what we're dealing very, with. It's very, very, very diet. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. So that's why you want to look at the full two hours. You can determine that I'm not going to call someone positive if it's past 90. You can do that as a clinician. However, let me, you know, just put this out there as we discussed. We've had, we've seen a lot of distal positives, and those patients have been kicked around by a lot of offices before they found a functional integrative medicine doctor who said, you know what, it's distal, but I'm I think this is small intestine. I have chronic postprandial syndrome. I'm going to treat, and guess what? They treat, and that patient resolves the symptoms. So we can point to data. The problem with data sometimes is if you call that black and white meaning. Okay, we've done some studies not related to hydrogen and methane breath testing, but just transit studies. So we're not going to consider anything positive mm-hmm. past 90. You're right. You're going to get true positives, positive, but you're going to, you're going to miss mm-hmm. some positives as well. Suffice so, it to say, the, the, the interpretation is an art, and you, you're really a master of the art, and that's actually one of the reasons why I think people, in addition to the accuracy of the testing, uh, that's one thing, but also the interpretive uh, skills that you and your uh, your staff bring to this, I think, uh, adds value to the test results. Uh, Gary, can you take PPIs? Can you take uh, Prevacid, Prilosec during uh, the testing? Because a lot of patients who have SIBO, they have GERD also, and some of them are on these meds. Is that contraindicated? So it, it was originally, it was asked to be off PPIs for two weeks prior to test, but it has since been removed by the it, manufacturer. It's a um, pr- however, it's a practical obstacle because some patients they literally cannot get off the PPIs so they have a lot of difficulty uh, weaning. Exactly, exactly right. But here's here's uh, the scenario. 
um, it, it you don't have to be off of them at, per the per the manufacturer at this point. However, I'm going to give you a picture of what you give me, right? So anything that you can be off, and we don't say this to patients. We talk to patients every day because we talk to them directly about the prep, but we don't tell them ever. It always comes from their clinician what products they should be on or off. However, it, I'm going to give you a picture of what you give me. So I know that, um, you know, antibiotics have a half-life and all of this. However, um, you know, if you can be off antibiotics for at least 10 days, then um, we're sure that we're going to give you a clean picture of how that small intestine is acting without any interference. As far as the other products like PPIs, if you can do a couple of days without it or a week without it, great. If you can't, we just both have to agree that we're seeing a picture of gas based on this uh, patient being on this, and that's okay. It should not impact it because we're looking at small intestine issues, not you know, um, you, you know, you're talking about gas in the stomach, right? With with PPIs, that's what you're you're trying to reduce, right? Mm-hmm. It's not small intestine, mm-hmm. right? Gary, um, you also offer other tests um, in addition to the SIBO tests. Uh, you offer tests for uh, malabsorption of fructose, lactose, and sucrose. I think uh, many people are familiar with lactose intolerance. That's very common uh, in among certain, especially ethnic groups, you know, some people are genetically able to digest lactose uh, well into adulthood. It's also if you, if you, if you don't use it, you lose it. Some people just lose the ability to digest lactose. Uh, but there are other uh, compounds that pose problems, uh, fructose and sucrose, and you test for those as well. Absolutely. And we, and there, there are more, there's more of a prevalence than you might imagine even here in the U.S. Um, to your point, ethnic group wise, it does, it does have certain trends to it, um, you know, lactose, but fructose, uh, ironically, is where I see most of those, uh, test requests coming from are from, uh, gastrointestinal offices. So gastros are, are sending these out. And I think it might primarily be related to the changing in the, the, the U.S. diet that we've seen over the past 30 years and all of these uh, prepackaged foods and fast foods and different things with the high fructose corn syrup is, is kind of highlighting the fact that we do have intolerances. Now, without getting into details, fructose intolerance is different than lactose and sucrose. Yeah, because it's a, a monosaccharide, yeah. right, as opposed exactly. to disaccharide. So it's not a lack of an enzyme uh, to right. cleave the two sugars. It's a single sugar, right? Exactly. And so to your question on the intolerance, so when when do intolerance and when do SIBO go back to the whole? If it's chronic postprandial symptoms, anytime I eat anything, any type of day, day a week, any type of food, that's SIBO. That's where you want to test for SIBO. Mm-hmm. If they you hear words like, well, it's every afternoon, or well, it's every morning, or, well, it's every third day, have them diary what they're eating, everything, including mints, gum, toothpaste, everything, and corresponding symptoms, and you'll probably zero into an intolerance. Mm-hmm. Okay, great stuff. Uh, Fortunately, we're running a little short on time, so uh, where can clinicians and patients learn more about aerodiagnostics? Thanks. Yeah, they can reach out to us directly at aerodiagnostics.com. That's A-E-R-O, diagnostics, all one word, dot com. You can reach us via phone at 617-608-3832. If you want to speak with me directly, I'm happy to call you directly myself. 
And, you know, Gary, I just don't know how you make yourself, you you you, you're, you have really poor boundaries because you just are, you're more available than you should be uh, as a busy professional, but uh, more power to you because I think you're on a mission to uh, get this right and to uh, extend the benefits of this type of testing to so many people. I mean, it's such a prevalent problem. Uh, tens of millions of Americans suffer from GI complaints and we can unravel their problems uh, using tests like the ones you offer. So... Uh, your Thank service you. is appreciated. Really, really yeah. Enjoyed and those it. that are treating, yeah, those that are treating SIBO patients, I I bow to them because without them, we're not going to help any patient. So thanks to them. Well, you're 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 becoming a legend within the SIBO community. So um, uh, you're the go-to guy for sure. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Hoffman. That's Gary Stapleton, founder of Aero Diagnostics Laboratories. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. As an Intelligent Medicine listener, you know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. But vetting your sources and tracking down the exact products you need can be a hassle. That's why I'm inviting you to browse my online supplement dispensary at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. My specially curated professional-grade supplements are fulfilled via the Fullscript network. Fullscript is the safest and most convenient way to purchase my medical-grade supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA-compliant and offers world-class support. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's drhoffmanstore.com. drhoffmanstore.com.